This is unstructured. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm sitting here with Dustin Cubit. I met Dustin in mixed mental arts. Yes, it's a running theme through this podcast. We are sort of a spinoff, but we have our own identity. Dusty also contributes to Unstructured quite a bit and is always around. He's known as the woke centrist. So the obvious first question is, Dusty, what the hell is a woke centrist? Um, a woke centrist is somebody that tries to build bridges between the ideological extremes. But I'm really horrible at that, so I tend to uh, really attack the ideological extremes. But, um, y- you know, I-, I get in arguments with them a lot, <laughs> so, <laughs> which, which, which that's what it means. But um, as a centrist, I try to pull people towards a different understanding of what they oppose might be. So um, one of the things that really, really bugs me is when someone points a finger to another side and just treats them like they're the complete evil enemy. Uh, my focus is just to try to get people to understand each other, you know, even if it's, you know, a liberal pointing at a Republican or vice versa. I, I believe I maybe have, you know, a bit of empathy for both sides, and I'm trying to pass off that empathy into these people so they don't treat these people like Hitler or stalin you know (laughs) so um it's it's trying to bring people together trying to reflect the mirror on uh the way they think and the way they kind of uh just tribalize and and not understand the other side so could it be a methodology that uh if you're busy attacking you get both sides angry at you and so they can unite um (laughs) i i guess so like i don't mind being a punching bag I, it's actually quite fun. Uh, a lot of the times I'll argue with people with stuff I don't even believe in. Um, <laughs> like I'll argue the, uh, the Republican talking points to a liberal and I'll, I'll argue the liberal talking points to a Republican, but instead of doing it in a complete, you know, aggressive and animalistic way, I try to be more nuanced so that they'll have a better understanding. And if they say they point their finger at me, it's like, Oh, you liberal. I'll say, well, I'm not a liberal. <laughs> or they say, Oh, you, you conservative. And I was like, no, I'm not a conservative. <laughs> so as, as soon as you tell them that they can't use the usual thinking that they would when they think they're talking to somebody on the opposing side, they have to do a little bit better. One thing I've noticed you- convince me. I'm sorry. One thing I've noticed is you do chase a subject down for quite a while. Um, multiple times I've I've talked to you on the side saying, I think they're probably done. And you usually will chase for about five more comments. And often you are right. You actually have a breakthrough like five or ten comments down the road where other people, I think, have less patience. So I, I kind of admire that. Um, I really don't like to leave things unresolved, especially if there's some information there that's false. Like, that really bugs me. Um, it really bothers me that somebody can construct a worldview based off of some type of information they may have, you know, received that was extremely uh, speculative or sensationalized. So, um, just some of the statistics that some people come up with are 
a lot of the people are getting these this information from memes you know memes aren't really there to provide information or they're, they're provided to kind of shake you into a certain worldview without giving you the nuances of what a you know a policy or a stance might be about a certain subject okay so memes are for triggering essentially yeah well the way memes are used um i like memes for comedy but when it comes to politics um, to me it, it just it's just propaganda at that point it's used to either you know rile people up or anger them or um just give them a really simple explanation for a really complex issue now your um understanding and uh dealing with extremes on both sides is this coming out of um your current working background being a game developer uh yeah a little bit um i would say um i wasn't really politically involved too much um at all i just kind of went through life um just kind of seeking what i thought i'd like to do as far as pleasure like political stuff didn't interest me at all um but there was one point um when it did kind of strike at home and um this was while i was a, a game developer for for activision but um what happened was you know i was just working um i was also paying attention to a lot of online discussions about gaming um i was uh very much into just reading you know the current gaming news getting up to date on what's going on what people are feeling what people are getting uh, excited for you know what games they really want to see um and at this one blog which I don't know if I could really call it a blog because it was pretty much the biggest video game news site in the world at that point. Mm. And, um, which it evolved into a more journalistic type of, um, publication. But at the time it was, it was making that transition. Which site so is that? Uh, Kotaku. Okay. It's a, a very popular, uh, video game news site. Okay. So I was, I was always checking that daily. And then one day, um, there was an article, um, posted. I really didn't know what was going on. And the article was titled, I don't remember the exact title, but the, what they were trying to convey is that all gamers were angry, white men, misogynistic basement dwellers that hate women and harass women online. Aren't you? Yeah, I'm totally a white guy. <laughs> uh, if you guys don't know, I'm not white at all, but I might sound white, but I am not. Oh, okay. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty mixed race guy. But anyway, um, I was wanting to know what was going on. You know, why are they attacking their own audience or their perceived audience? So I, I just did a little bit more digging to see what was going on. So what happened was there was some type of, um, I would say, a journalistic ethics problem that had been uncovered. So what I found out is that um, there was this uh, small, very small time game developer that had gotten into a relationship with a, a games journalist. <laughs> and um, this came out that this relationship had been going on for a little while. 
Um, what also surprised me at the time is that the um, the game developer, I noticed on this particular site that I read a lot, she was mentioned a lot. Well, you know, like four or five articles. Mm-hmm. And this really puzzled me because I'd never heard of this person. You know, they're really super small time independent. And, you know, it's not really somebody that was notable, you know, and I was just just wondering why is this person um, being brought up to so prominently on this site. So after that came out, I was like, Oh, okay. I know, you know, she's in a relationship with one of the journalists. Okay. Yeah. So um, that relationship was never disclosed. What year was this? um, This was probably uh, summer of 2014. So it's about almost four years ago. Okay. Okay. So I noticed this. I was like, huh, you know, that's strange. Um, You know, it would have been okay if they had let us know that there was like a relationship going on. You know, that would have been fine. Mm -hmm. But um, no, they didn't. Um, There's also this big backlash online about this um, game developer. If anyone want to know, um, name is Zoe Quinn. But this game developer um, just had a really, really nasty breakup. And her ex-boyfriend kind of posted all their, you know, dirty laundry online. The journalist? Oh, no, the ex-boyfriend. Okay, so this is what happened. The ex-boyfriend uncovered her infidelities and posted it online. So, oh, her so, infidelities yeah. with the journalist. Yeah, so, the plot so that's how, yeah, that's how everybody found out. So this guy makes a blog post, posts her infidelities. We find out that it's with a game journalist. So there were other events that led up to this that were questionable. Just, um, there was another, um, a games writer, games journalist a few years ago who had gotten fired, um, from his, his, uh, magazine. And the reason he got fired was because he had given a game, a bad review and rightly really? so. Yeah. But the problem was that the advertiser, the main advertiser, was putting a lot of advertising dollars into that game. Mm. So they let their advertiser control the critique, which I thought, you know, that's that's uh, that's not very good ethically. Like, right? We want to get it's not you know, journalistic. Unbi- you mean? Yeah. Journalism has changed quite a bit. So what's journalistic now isn't the same as it was five or 10 years ago. So is that an (laughs) issue then that the um, game publications are in effect um, funded by the game manufacturers themselves? Uh, They do have a cozy relationship. um, But even that wasn't the issue. Um, There had been a little, uh, a couple, you know, little things like that that were happening before this big blow up. So once a big blow up happened, lots of people got angry online. um, And there was also kind of an ideological unity amongst the gaming magazines, um, particularly the the online gaming magazines. Um, there was just a lot of stuff happening at the same time. So this is where we start to see um, a lot of online critique in reference to 
sexism and misogyny online and racism. Now, this is so, all under one umbrella. There was a name for it. What was that? Are you talking about the SJWs, man? No. <laughs> Wasn't this all called Gamergate? Yeah. So Gamergate is actually was coined by a right-wing actor, I guess, uh, Adam Baldwin. Uh, he actually hmm. coined the term on Twitter. It's not a right-wing movement at all. It It's actually apolitical. There's no underlying politics uh, in this movement. Um, as, fa- as a matter of fact, um, there was a journalist um, that did a, a poll and in all of the uh, different Gamergate communities and actually... It's mostly a left-leaning group. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, at the time, it was a lot of Bernie supporters. You know, there's very few, you know, right-leaning people, but the ones that were right were more libertarian than anything else. You know, mm-hmm. not conservative. Because what was being complained about was just like, oh, you know, the the female characters are, are too scamp you know too clad with like bikinis and etc etc and uh they were upset i believe they did have a little bit of a point that you know video games were heavily marketed to men and males and uh, game developers did skew heavily male but um did booth babes come into that too no um dudes like to be honest I never really liked the whole booth babe thing. I thought it was kind of strange. <laughs> I guess they were trying to play off the whole nerd thing. Not all nerds are just like, oh, we see boobs and we want to attack them right away. Like sure. some of us, you know, some of us are adults and we're like, okay, you know, yeah, yeah. But um, it was um, a movement that kind of sparked what you have like this current online culture where you know, you have people yelling racism at each other on Twitter and sexism and, you know, homophobia, you know, it all spawned back then over video games, which is, is very strange because beforehand it was the right wing that we were fighting off, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, there's too much blood and violence in, in the games. And it was actually mm-hmm. went to Congress. There were some politicians who brought it to Congress and, um, the, the industry, I wouldn't say they cleaned up, but they definitely implemented their own rating system. And this is when you're going back to Mortal Kombat is when the uh, rating systems hmm. were uh, put on the games. Now, was that but, tied in yeah. with the music stuff? Because that was Tipper Gore. It was definitely not right wing. No, Tipper Gore was not um, with the video game. I believe the... Choose music. The poli- I didn't know if they rolled it together. Yeah. Yeah, the politician involved, I believe his name was Jack Thompson, but he was definitely um, right wing. Um, okay. So um, Gamergate happened. Um, it affected me personally because I felt that I was personally being attacked by journalists because they were going after game developers and gamers, and I was both at the time. Now, which journalists? Um, just like most mainstream video game online publications at the time like the majority of them Uh, because a a lot i would say about 99 percent of them are based in san francisco so you can pretty much guess what type of politics are are coming out of those areas it was just like before um we would read our video game articles and they they started to politicize 
these articles like we just wanted to read about video games not about uh you know uh how sexist we are because some female artist created a a really sexy character in a game it's just so weird if they want to stand up for women they're not standing up for the female artists who actually created it Mm -hmm. Uh, they, they just go ahead and attack the audience that consumed it didn't that roll out wider into the whole tech community? Because I remember listening to like this week in tech and um, all kinds of Mac break weekly and other shows that are out uh, of the San Francisco area, because I think ZDNet is out of there and things like that. And they all were talking about, Oh, the misogynistic Gamergate, Gamergate, Gamergate. So yeah, all, the, all of those publications were pretty much housed in the same building. So, uh, you know, uh, they're all talking to each other. They actually blew Gamergate up beyond what they should have. It, it would have died fairly quickly if they just apologized in the beginning. Said, okay, you know, we're sorry. Um, uh, we'll put a lid on, you know, not, you know, being forthright with the relationships that we're having with these developers or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of recognizing the fact that they breached their ethics they instead attack their own audience. Now, could it be said, ironically, because I feel like there's a farther ripple effect that has come out of Gamergate, that Gamergate kind of started it. Um, I don't know, the butterfly wings have become a hurricane or whatever. But I would argue there's a path for Trump being president out of Gamergate. You have the Milo Yiannopoulos who came from that front. You have, um, unfortunately, there's some really noxious people who may not have been directly game developers, but they kind of latched on to it like Vox Day. Um, I think Stefan Molyneux, who's not exactly alt-right. I'd say Vox Day is more alt-right. I don't quite know. They, While they may or may not be, they are really close kissing cousins with it for sure. Um. And the memes all seem to spawn out of this. The whole skeptic community kind of seemed to come out of it. The Sargons of Akkad, um, things like that. Yeah, I will agree that it did spawn a lot of commentary, YouTube channels, a lot of people who use the movement to catapult themselves, um, especially Milo. Um the thing about Gamergate and Gamergators themselves, we felt at that time that we had no outlet. Um, all of the media publications were saying whatever they wanted about us. Um, I just went and looked through the uh, the wiki article for Gamergate. And the funniest and oddest thing about it is that none of the things that they talk about Gamergate are alleged. Um, they're all preached as mm. facts, even though, you know, it's really hard to confirm anonymous things that happen online, like, um, people getting harassed. And this has been something that's happened since Twitter has been a thing. You know, someone says bad, something bad about this music pop star and the, their fans all go attack that person. Um, it's not an organized sicking of your fans on that person. It's just a reaction of what happens when you attack somebody with a lot of um, Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. So um, 
they spun this narrative that um, there were harassment campaigns being concocted. Um, from what I know, I never saw any type of harassment campaign whatsoever. Um, I never saw anything that would indicate that this person should be attacked. Um, whatever I saw, it would usually would say, you know, leave these people alone. You know, we can criticize them, but harassment is not okay. And there were a lot of instances where we would see people doing this and actively report them or try to stop them. Uh, and you know, it got really out of hand, you know, bomb threats were called on figures that were against Gamergate and they were called on figures in Gamergate. Um, that's right. Doxing by reading, swatting. Yeah. Didn't that come out of that too? Um, swatting actually existed before that it's swatting. is just calling a SWAT team on somebody who's streaming online. So, mm -hmm. um, anybody with, a who streams or does some type of live stream that gets your information, um, they have the ability to SWAT. There were people swatted, but we really don't know what the reason was. It could have just been like a troll trying to get some internet fame by sending a SWAT team. Uh, but I don't know if you heard recently, but somebody was killed yeah. doing that. Uh, yep. Yeah, but that that incident um, actually had nothing to do with Gamergate. It was just um, uh, an online troll event. Okay. Um, and that's, yeah, that's one of the other problems that whenever an online troll event happens, uh, people point at Gamergate and blame Gamergate for it. So it's, it's like, Gamergate the is the, oh, sure. It's like Gamergate is the online boogeyman. Ah, well, um, but, um that's gotta yeah, be yeah. hard. And that's part of why I wanted to talk to you because I don't completely understand it. I just know that there's so much associated with it and so many things um, came out of it. And whether it was Gamergate itself or people um, who were opportunistic jumping on it or just around it, it all seemed to kind of blow up out of there. And yes, it was just a snowball effect. Um, I think there was a lot of animosity um, because of the bipartisan um, kind of collapse where politics has gotten really out of hand as far as, you know, the media, people online, um, people can now choose their echo chambers now. So mm -hmm. that, that also had a, another contributing factor, but as far as just people jumping on the, the Gamergate bandwagon, um, I think Breitbart did really attempt to do that. Um, Milo came in with promises of, Oh, I'm going to write a book about Gamergate. Mm -hmm. Uh, he never did that. Um, if you were good, if you were to go to the, I guess the main Reddit forum right now, you wouldn't hear anything nice about Milo. Uh, you wouldn't mm -hmm. hear anything nice about Breitbart, uh, that you wouldn't hear anything nice about, you know, hardcore Donald Trump followers. But Gamergate is tagged at, as this crazy right-wing movement where it's pretty much an apolitical movement. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people on the left who got some fame for it as well. Um, yeah, Sargon of Akkad uh, is actually left. Yeah, yeah, Sargon Akkad got a big boost. Um, there was uh, Thunderfoot for a little while. 
Um, a lot of the skeptic community did um, latch on, but the thing is, is that it actually created something else. Like Gamergate in the beginning was explicitly about ethics and journalism, but the problem was is that there was this other problem that creeped in and it was just the very hardcore left-wing politics. So a lot of those people abandoned the the ethical journalism angle and they just went deep into the anti-feminist angle. Mm. Um, and that's when I kind of bailed. I was only there for the um, ethical journalism angle. And once we kind of um, actually achieved our victory with that, I was I was out of there because there's nothing else for me. Mm. So, and from a victory, we're talking about websites changing their ethics policies. Um, as far as Gawker, um, they just kind of <laughs> well, Gawker's gone. Exploded. Yeah. Um, They'll mess with Peter Thiel. Yeah, I don't. Well, it all started with Gamergate. Um, the first thing that happened was one of the um, editors of Gawker, um, in response to Gamergate, started. Uh, he he tweeted out something that was quite questionable, which was, "People should bully nerds." Basically, is is mm. what the gist was. So, um, some of the Gamergaters got together and started a campaign against their advertisers. A bunch of them pulled out. Hmm. And from what we heard, they lost about six figures in advertising. Six or seven. I'm, I don't know the exact number. So that brought them down a peg. Hmm. Out of all the publications, they're the only ones that didn't change their ethics policy. Shocking. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, what happened, uh, Hulk Hogan sweep, swooped in one their weekend and finished them off. That's pretty much what happened. But uh, Kotaku's still around. Gawker's gone. But um, another uh, media company went and bought and bought up all their publications. So the main publication Gawker's done with, but there's still all the other publications that they were running at the time, such as uh, Jezebel and Valley um, Wag and I don't remember all of them. Gizmodo. Um. Yeah, there's a bunch of them, but all those other ones are still are still uh, operating at the moment. But, um, yeah, it, it was weird. It, there was two simultaneous things. There was the ethical journalism concerns and with some others, it was the whole anti-feminism thing, which the, I thought they had some valid concerns. They were just going about it really the wrong way. Yeah. I feel like, well, it can't be a blame for trolling. I feel like Gamergate kind of taught people how to troll. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gamergate taught people how to, yeah, I would say organize. Because mm-hmm. um, you think about it, there were hashtag organizations before Gamergate. Um, there was the Occupy Wall Street, and that didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Um, they got disbanded within a couple of years. The thing is, there's still people working in Gamergate right now. Um, it's it's still going on strong for four years, even though I don't really see the point. But um, right now, what they saw was, okay, um, don't attack gamers because they're really vindictive. <laughs> uh, other pe- other people saw the success of Gamergate, and I know there were other movements that were 
along the same lines i know there's the sad puppies thing um yeah i wanted to was... go into that that's that's the vox day um larry korea and they destroyed the hugo award yeah i only read about it because there were some just a very small amount of people that were interested in it the the thing about gamergate was we we were totally focused just on games and games journalism uh, there was a point in time where other people from other movements tried to jump in and steal our thunder to try to help them out. Mm-hmm. And w- what we told everybody is like, we're not your personal army. You know, we have our issue. It's games. You know, you have your issue, which is, you know, might be sci-fi, might be comic books, but um, we're not here to be manipulated by outside groups to do what they will even though we did to a point when it comes to breitbart which we did get a bit manipulated by you mean trump bart yeah basically trump bart (laughs) (laughs) or trump pravda (laughs) some would call it yeah so yeah the the thing that is gamergate today um it's basically just i think they just go on about censorship and you know anti-feminist stuff which i really don't care for um i go there every once in a while to check and see what they're talking about i guess the most recent thing that they're talking about because i just checked today because i know we might talk about it um they were talking about just like the recent shooting that happened at youtube headquarters Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and that's what they were what the boards were on fire about what's the pulse on that right now because i i find that a obviously troubling and scary because some very troubled person went in and shot people. Um, but I'm not saying that she was justified. She had kind of a reason. And there's well, the reason. Yeah. So I, I would say I'm an avid YouTube watcher. I follow a lot of personalities. Uh, one thing I've noticed probably over the last five years is that uh, content creators have pretty much been forced to make content more regularly. Um, before they could get by like on one or two videos a week and that would sustain them. Uh, nowadays they're, they're making videos every day because they're not making as much money as they did before. And that was due to an incident that happened. Um, I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before. Um, what happened is, um, the wall street journal had pointed their fingers at a very popular YouTube YouTuber and, uh, his name is PewDiePie. So, you you know, he's this crazy gamer, you know, foreign dude. (laughs) So, um, he was making satirical jokes about Hitler. And of course they took those things out of context and, they went to the advertisers and showed the advertisers, hey, this guy's uh, doing Hitler. He's promoting Hitler, not making Hitler jokes. They told him, oh, this is a, an anti-Semite promoting Hitler. Um, it was just comedy, basically. Didn't he have so, one that was um, a joke on the fact you could get people on Fiverr to do anything? And it was... Yeah, like yeah, having, that is all. Okay, and it, it was, the joke was he had... Um, I think it was Indians or somebody who did not even know English hold up a sign that said kill all Jews or something just to express how ridiculous the Fiverr aspect was and was being ultimately hyper satirical in the Godwin's Law type of manner. 
Yeah, that was actually all part of the same video. So, yeah, he did hire some um, fivers to wave around a sign that said kill all Jews in a, a way of kind of satirizing what you can do and get away with on Fiverr. You know, this is what they allow. You know, mm-hmm. how ridiculous is that, of course. So uh, YouTube, um, a lot of advertisers pulled out. So they got really strict with their rules about you know, what you could show, what type of content they could offer to advertisers. So, um, depending on what you do, you might get way less ad sales on your, mm-hmm. on your video. So if you're edgy, you use a lot of curse words or, you know, art off color or dark humor, you can expect not to make as much money as somebody who might do educational videos or something of, of that nature. So after that change, um, a lot of these, I guess you could say edgier YouTubers were kind of falling off because they couldn't sustain uh, a living now doing what they were doing on YouTube without, you know, doubling or tripling their output. So those that didn't have the following that even if they doubled and tripled their output, um, still wouldn't sustain, you know, Mm -hmm their live their living style or pay rent or and whatnot um a lot of them would maybe cut it in half and get another job or quit completely and try to do something else with their lives um i think the woman who went to the youtube headquarters is probably i would say i guess a victim of that but i watched the videos i didn't think they were that great but apparently some people did but um did it stop with just the edgier ones though because i i feel like there is actually a real backlash on youtube um prager university i don't know if you've ever heard of them yes i've heard of them they're yes they're right wing but they're not exactly i mean would you call them edgy or violent or controversial i wouldn't um the problem is is that um and this has been happening in a lot of different social media platforms. It happens on Facebook. It happens on Twitter and of course, YouTube. So, uh, what's been noticed is that a lot of, uh, I would say right leaning or white right wing voices have been, you know, um, silenced, I would say. Um, so if you look at just guys like Milo kicked off of Twitter, uh, Sargon of of Cod was kicked off of Twitter. Um, Even some really benign people like uh, Bunty King, who's just a really nice guy. I've never seen it, heard him say a hateful word to anybody. He's been kicked off like three times. I know comedians get kicked off a lot. Um, The problem is, it's just if you're not towing a specific ideological line, then, you know, but, you might get kicked off or censored. I know one of my favorite um, alternative news guys, Tim Pool, has had to retool his show based off of the topics that he talks about. There are certain mm. topics that you cannot talk about without getting demonetized. Like just mentioning the word Islam might get your your topic or your your video removed from from ads, even if it's benign you know saying something if he said something nice about islam Mm -hmm. like oh islam is great etc etc uh he would probably get demonetized for that and it's because they do 
automatically um, put people on lists and they will get demonetized. You know, they have a very, very um, large scrutiny towards these right wing voices, even if they say something nice about things. So it's not a person. It's just a algorithm checking their videos for certain keywords, an algorithm checking their their titles, their YouTube descriptions for certain keywords. Mm-hmm. And if these keywords are flagged, then their videos get demonetized. So it's it's kind of, I would say it's, it's thinning the herd a bit. We are losing some interesting people. Like I know there was the uh, Count Dankula who's, who, who's having his issues in, um, I believe it's Scotland for... Uh, doing a joke about training his dog to do the Hail Hitler sign. Yes. It's obviously a joke. Found guilty and faces two years in prison, I believe. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have a fear um, right now that our favorite, you know, or maybe our favorite comedians might be next. You know, it's, it's really sad to see um, jokes be, be um i can't i don't want to curse here so i'm just trying to find the words <laughs> sure it, it's a it's not bad but it, ari it, shafir was kicked off of twitter yeah lots of comedians get get uh get kicked off of twitter nowadays it's 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 hard because you got to stay funny you know that's your right that's how you make money you got to stay funny on twitter you got to stay funny on your social media platforms to draw people in. You got to stay funny on podcasts. And the great thing about podcasts is there's no problem. Um, podcasts is like kind of like the last bastion of free speech at this point. For now. <laughs> but right now we make no money, so we're no threat. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Unless you're someone like Joe Rogan, uh, you could say whatever he wants. Yeah, even Joe Rogan can get hit. Um, PewDiePie was unstoppable when he got hit he had he had 62 million subscribers his average videos pulled in what 12 13 million views at a pop which is what three times what fox or cnn gets on any show yeah but from what i understand rogan does makes most of his money from like the actual ads um not from youtube his youtube numbers aren't no his podcast extremely great yeah, his podcast just—it's millions of downloads. So if he lost his YouTube presence, I don't think it would hit him that much. Um, not as much as um, people who are exclusively uh, through YouTube, like Sargon of Akkad, or, or people in that realm of uh, politics. Does that concern you at all? It concerns me because. I feel that it's not the government that's cracking down on speech. Mm-hmm. It's corporations. And I, I was positing something on Facebook earlier today. And what I, I was thinking about as far as how much the ad revenue system has actually changed our society. Mm-hmm. I like, just think about it. So Everything we know is clickbait. That's mm-hmm. all driven by ad revenue. Um, all the news we see on cable, all of it has t- 
totally changed the landscape of the type of media that we receive. So anyone pulls advertisers, then that's basically a way to silence somebody. See, that's what frightens me. Um, I have a, 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 a mixed feeling because there's a libertarian side that says, hey, it is a private business. They can do what they want. But there's also a situation here where that business is so scaled and there's so many regulations and so many barriers for someone else to get in there that YouTube has almost become a commodity. And if it is the only realistic, because obviously Vimeo isn't running up and causing any problems for them or anyone else, if that's the only outlet, then the demonetization or putting on parental ratings, things like that, if somebody's trying to make a living, aren't they going to have to censor themselves? And when they do, now are we actually getting their opinion? Are we actually getting facts? I know Tim Poole you brought up earlier, he's reaching out and finding his own advertisers that he's embedding in his own videos to try to cover himself and getting what he can from Patreon, which is also controversial. But isn't it kind of a bit of a dystopian nightmare? And uh, Instead of the government, though, it's private corporations that are controlling the world's speech. Well, even then, it's scary, but just think about what our media environment was about 20 years ago or even 30 years ago. Well, we have like four stations. So it's been exponentially expanded since then. You know, I, I wouldn't have access to the amount of information we have now. The only thing we can hope is that one... We don't get what Steve Bannon wants, which is to make the internet a utility. So you do that, and the government has control over the internet. Um, I don't think that's a great idea, uh, honestly. But um, it is scary, but then again, there's, there's so much information out there, it's hard to kind of get the wheat from the chaff. You know what? It, it's... We have all this crazy news about Russian bots, you know, going on on social media and, you know, injecting these fake stories. And have you looked at the right numbers now- on that, though? They're really not that extensive. I mean, I was surprised when I read how many actual bots there were and how many people they really affected. When you look at the scale and the scope, it I don't know if it even affected a tenth of a percent. Probably not, but I remember during the early, uh, early into the election, there were so many fake news sites out there, and fake news was so rampant, um, especially on Facebook. Uh, it was stunning. Um, it was just stunning how many people were duped by these things. Mm-hmm. So it's not the government that has control over what we see anybody has control over what we see now but it looks like the the corporations you know google are trying to clamp down on that and they're doing that to make more money essentially they don't want to lose their advertisers so they're going to do whatever they can to keep those advertisers around which is why i think it's a really bad idea to boycott advertisers i know i agree i was for it um, during the beginning of Gamergate. And then I looked at it in hindsight. I was like, you know what? Attacking advertisers 
is not a good idea. No, it's better to attack the voice with more speech. I personally feel that. Instead of going after their employers or the people that pay them, just attack them with better content because you don't really want to start it. You go attack their advertisers and they come and attack your advertisers. Soon we have no advertisers. Yeah, like right now, I think tagging an advertiser is a trick that somebody uses if they don't have a lot of power. So um, I think one of the most recent examples would be David Hogg versus Mm -hmm. Laura Ingram. Um, He went after her advertisers. Personally, you know, if you're a public figure, you know, expect to be criticized, whether you're, you know, a 17 year old kid or not. Um, Yeah, her comments were in poor taste. So are his. Yeah, they weren't (laughs) extremely egregious, but, you know, just duke it out. You know, battle ideas. Don't say, uh, don't say, oh, she hurt me so much. Let me go after her advertisers. It's just. Well, he he had some help. Uh, Media Matters with David Brock. That's their MO. And they were working it with them. Yeah, I don't I don't know the full scope of the story, but I know just from hindsight, I don't think I'd ever go after someone's advertisers again. I just Yeah, Gawker fell a little bit, but you know, it's probably was a last resort thing that Gamergate did because we didn't have they didn't have the media. The media wasn't listening. Um in fact right. they were making whatever stories they wanted about everything so well you have breitbart which is a horrible (laughs) (laughs) news outlet but um they were young and dumb and they use whatever tools available but to gamergate's credit um they taught a lot of people that you can get the word out around the news yeah but that's only for the people that were actively looking into things um as far as like the normal everyday Joe that just reads a couple news articles or usually just a couple headlines, uh, they're not gonna they're not gonna know. But uh, people who hit like the deeper parts of the web, like Reddit, Twitter, maybe uh, they might go and look for it. But the the average Joe still would just uh, take their news from the the usual sources like. Um, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. And the problem with those publications is during Gamergate, they relied on the game journalists. So all of their news, they didn't actually go and investigate it. They just asked the game journalists, hey, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And they they basically were filtered through them. So um, it wasn't until um, Game Journal... There was a actual conference that um, Game Gamergate kind of attacked one of the um, runners of the Society of Professional Journalists. They, he was running a journalist convention. Hmm. Bunch of, he got bombarded by, by a bunch of Gamergaters. They were trying to get his attention because you know his whole conference was about journalistic ethics. Hmm. So he gets bombarded. He's like, you know, what's up with these whack jobs? So he finds out what's going on and he agrees to hold a conference to get everybody talking to each other. So that's Gamergate and the game journalist. Who, who was this uh, person? Um, 
know what? I forget his name. Because that sounds very impressive that he actually took that stance. Yeah, he 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 treated it like a scoop. So the thing about the uh, Society of Professional Journalists, most of them are investigative journalists, so they actually go and dig a bit. So mm-hmm. um, we're talking about people who who work for, I guess, local news channels, mm-hmm. um, big newspapers. You know, not these online rags that just kind of uh, right the uh, ones that have what everybody else is doing. Yeah, basically. That that scares me as well. But um, what happened is um, he put together a conference. Uh, he got some people representing Gamergate. Uh, was supposed to have everybody at the table, but everybody on the oppositional side of Gamergate didn't want to attend because they, mm-hmm. you know, they would have got uncovered for frauds and whatnot. So what happened is um, well, they control the narrative. Yeah, exactly. So. What happened is the conference went through um, what they really wanted to accomplish because they didn't have the other side there is they wanted to know what Gamergate was, what could the mainstream media do to um, better cover these nebulous online movements where there's no leaders, there's no clear message. So Gamergate, they went ahead and, and pleaded their case about the um the infractions they saw and they agreed so that this was basically the only reputable organization that actually agreed with what gamergate was saying and on top of that yeah on top of that they tried to teach these um these journalists that weren't in to know how to cover these online movements unfortunately milo was in the second panel Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, he, he pretty much ruined it. You know, he wanted to go on and on about feminism and all of that. That's not what the purpose of, of this conference was for is for ethics. And it was for learning how to, um, cover these odd online movements because, right. you know, modern day journalism doesn't know how to do it yet. They still don't, you know, so I think Milo's been kind of outed, no pun intended, as a bit of a fraud. Yeah, he he just liked to stir things up. Like, one of the things I noticed is, um, well, there was like a free speech uh, conference at Berkeley or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And he quit the conference. And this is just what I heard because there was not a big enough antifa presence mm-hmm. the thing is with milo he needs that antifa presence right. if it's not there he doesn't make the news so his there is just a, his, he's there just to rile people up basically and um and he, he he buffs himself up he he gloms onto movements like he did with gamergate he skipped out on that and he got hardcore into trump mm-hmm. and then you know he says the wrong thing on some podcast and he gets beat down and he's kind of an obscure voice. Now he doesn't go to many college campuses anymore. I think people know what's up now. Oh, definitely. Now let's um, shift back. You um, weren't always a game developer, were you? No. Um, I've had many different, career paths. I wouldn't even call them career paths, but I've worked a ton of different jobs, but, um, 
uh, before I was a game developer, I'll just start probably right after high school. You know, I go to college and um, my, I'm actually from San Diego. Okay. Great weather there. And uh, I'm in Virginia now with you. Oh, even worse, Northern Virginia. <laughs> we're we're going to get to why. I, I, I want to go back in time, but I just wanted to know where you're from to establish that peg. All right. Well, I could I could start from the bottom. I was actually born in San Diego. Uh, nice. Both of my parents, uh, multiracial. So as a child, I didn't really have a race that I identified with. Um, that and my neighborhood was really diverse. It was, a, I would say, majority Hispanic neighborhood, but we had kids of all shapes and colors there. Um, all playing together. We didn't segregate ourselves. Um, so, um, all throughout my young life, um, I lived in, uh, I grew up with two sisters who are twins. So I'm the only boy in the house. Mm. And, um, early on in my life, my father did disappear, which happens to a lot of low income families. Mm. Um, so we grew up pretty poor. Um, we didn't have too many resources, but at the time I never felt poor, which is something that I really, really like about how my mom raised us. I didn't feel that all the other kids had it better than me because we were all down there. You know, we all had very similar lives. So we didn't see the whole contrast between, you know, the rich kids with all the toys and then mm. the poor kids with, you know, all the, uh, you know, the one Nintendo game for the year. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't a, a thing for us. But, Were you um, close then? Very close-knit? Oh, could you go ahead and repeat that? I'm sorry. Were you very close-knit then? Your mother and sisters and you? Yeah, me, my mom, and my sisters were pretty close knit, um, and we still are somewhat close knit. I only say somewhat because I'm so far away from them now. We'll get mm-hmm. to that later, <laughs> but um, yeah, we were a close knit family. We we're also latchkey kids, so um, that means in the morning you get to do whatever you want, and then <laughs> you come home when it gets dark, which is not something that's normal today, but, um, we did have a pretty poor upbringing. Um, my mother did have government assistance, even with food, you know, food stamps or even, you know, getting the government cheese and whatnot. Mm. Um, our lives did improve. Um, my mom did meet my stepdad and, uh, they got married when I was in fourth grade and um, we worked our way from the absolute bottom, and we always improved our lives. Um, so when I lived my life, which I'm happy to have started at the bottom, I don't have this kind of resentment about the way I was, I was brought up at all. I actually prefer it. I, I would have... Mm-hmm preferred that i i kind of started at the bottom and worked up um so you've experienced gravity 
in other words. Yes, yes. So I was a very, very, very odd kid. Um, very questionable dresser, especially in elementary school. And um, that's totally changed now, right? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, of course, socially weird. Um, I loved bikes and bike riding. Um, I loved it so much that I thought to be a cool bike rider, you had to wear cycling shorts. Mm. And when you're not cycling. So I was wearing cycling <laughs> shorts to school. You know, That is an unfortunate a, choice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't know. I, I was the most socially awkward kid. So I go, go to school wearing these super tight shorts. I didn't know it had any type of sexual connotation because <laughs> my mind was not there. So growing up, everyone thinks I'm weird. Um, in sixth grade and fifth grade, there was, there was definitely some attempted bullying and I say attempted cause they were never successful cause I was always a big kid. So the attempted bullying would always have to be like a group of four or five people going after me. Big muscular a, or, or just heavy. Well, we're talking six. Yeah. We're just talking sixth grade. Are you mean me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was five, probably like five, eight in the sixth grade. Okay. So yeah, I was already a pretty big kid. So the funny thing is I go, I go through elementary school being super awkward, wearing the wrong clothes, getting these weird MC hammer haircuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was super awkward. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I loved it. Um, I totally changed as soon as I got to middle school. Um, that's when I got into music. And at the time, I was listening to everything else everybody else was listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, I did grow a really big affinity for rap music. So I was looking the part and listening to it. So by looking the part, we're talking about the 90s. So, you know, I didn't sag off my butt. Mm-hmm. Cause my butt is too big, so it would just like go maybe an inch lower than normal. <laughs> uh, and we're wearing like our plaid gangster shirts. We were playing gangster. We weren't real gangsters, you mm-hmm. know. That's what kids do. Um, and then um, I went to high school. It, it's weird. This it was a total change in lifestyle and dress. Just as I was growing up. So once I got to high school, I started to mellow down because I was a really bad kid and in a middle school, just teasing kids. I became the bully. Mm. It's like it was like a cycle. So they tried to bully me. I became the bully. Um, I got out of that pretty quickly after they sent me to like a week long detention that was basically solitary confinement while at school. Wow. Which is, yeah, that's how harsh it was. So I got out of that and um, I started doing better, getting interested in in school and things. I wasn't a horrible student, but I wasn't a a good student. Um, I started getting into sports, started learning how to be social with kids, you know, not being weird. Which sports? Um, Well, just football, but it was just football I only played it because 
I was asked to. I didn't really have a real interest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, all of my friends played it. It was just more of a social thing for me rather than a desire to be an awesome football player. Hmm. Of course, that was something probably that my parents wanted, but not really something that I did. Hmm. Um, so finally, when I'm a senior in high school, um, I get a girlfriend and my parents are like super happy because this whole time they thought I was gay. Uh, it was the bicycle the, shorts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I was gay because of the bicycle shorts. I didn't learn this till later. It's like, oh yeah, we're so happy you have a girlfriend because I was just hanging around with my buddies. You know, we go home, we go and play video games. You know, do whatever dorks do. So I finally got a girlfriend. That made my parents happy because they knew I wasn't gay anymore. <laughs> wasn't gay in the first place, but they they prepared themselves for that because that's what they think. Not that it's wrong per se, but no, not that it's wrong at all. Um, so yeah, I graduate high school. Um, throughout my whole time in school, my passion was to be a game developer. Me and my friends would draw like game design levels make up stories we had wild imaginations we loved playing video games so i was focused was it like D style games or actual video game development well we didn't have the tools back then so we just drew pictures of what our game was going to be Okay. So if you had a 2D platformer, we'd actually draw the entire 2D platformer level. Huh. And then we would play test our own levels by our finger would be the character and we would move our character through the drawing as if we were playing that drawing with our hand. Wow, that's a lot of work. Yeah, we, we some of the levels were basically like 10 pages stitched together, just all drawn on. And we made multiple levels, tons of different levels and characters. We were designing a bunch of stuff. Hmm. Um, So I was like really focused. I really wanted to be a game developer. So um, because I was kind of a lax student and I felt that college wasn't really going to be something I was going to afford. And by college, I mean like a four-year university. If I had Mm -hmm. great grades, I probably... I, the thing is, I was afraid that I was going to waste money just by the way I was as a student in high school. I felt that I would get caught up by something, not get interested, and just kind of fail the course and lose my grants or, or whatnot. So to do a preventative measure, I was going to go to community college first, make sure I could get through the whole thing, and then maybe transfer to a four-year just so I could save a bit of money Mm -hmm. and to prepare myself a little bit when I was actually going to have to put like a good amount of money into my education. Um, So I have to figure out, okay, what do game developers need to learn? So I was a bit naive. I was like, okay, I guess I got to learn computer programming stuff. You know, back then I wasn't a programmer at all. So I enrolled in a transfer program Got through some of the stuff, um, got to some really difficult classes with, you know, crazy mathematics, calculus three, 
And I was like, oh mm. man, this stuff is like super hard. And I felt I was really unprepared for it. Um, so much so that I think I retook like the class like two times and I was getting really dismayed at the point at, at that moment, thinking that I wasn't going to make it. And then, um, these tools come out for game development. So I look at these tools. I was like, Hmm, I don't need to know any programming. What am I doing? Really? Really? (laughs) How does that work? At that time. All right, so the thing about game development, it's such a multifaceted thing. It, there's so many different positions. You could be an artist. Uh-huh. You can be someone who does the music. You can be the programmer, of uh-huh. course, or you could just design the levels or design the game mechanics. There's so many different skill sets, so many different positions that are available to a game developer that's something i didn't know now, at the time now when when you were saying that um you, there were these tools are, are those game engines yeah so at this point we're talking about game engines that are made available to the public so when i was a kid um the only mock game engine that we had was sonic the hedgehog because there was a cheat code where you can kind of design your own little levels at a little let you place items and create like these little mini levels that's what i was exposed to and i was like okay i could do this stuff but um at the time i was just kind of trying to do research because the internet was really new at the time Mm -hmm. and everyone's talking about computer programming that's what you need you need you need programming so i was like trying to do that whole thing but this game tool comes out which was unreal engine Mm -hmm. uh, which is a very popular engine today i get a hold of it and i'm just blown away at what you can do without needing to know programming now before you get deep into how does it really work because you know, I keep hearing, oh, this has this engine or that engine or this engine supported in the iOS or different things. How does a game engine actually work? Does it allow you to draw a picture of a person or object or something and say, I want person or object to move to the right at this speed if the controllers move to the right or something like that? Yeah, so uh, what a game engine does is it prepackages uh many different tools into a development environment so there's many different tools involved depending on what your role is so someone who's doing art is going to work with photoshop things like that someone who's doing 3d art is going to work with 3d modeling tools someone who's mm-hmm. working with programming is going to work in a com- well i guess visual studio or something of that nature So what it does is it allows that to be a collaborative project. So you have this underlying engine that puts all of these tools together. It gives you a way to display your art. It gives you a three-dimensional space to add your own 3D objects in. And it gives you the basics for creating a 3d world or character and i'm talking about the most basic level of unreal you can do a lot more than that if you really dig into the engine but i wasn't really trying to dig into it too much i just wanted to be creative and create things so now 
engines are much more complicated. You could do so much. You could make 3D movies in them. You can make simulations. But now if you're looking at current Unreal Engine, it's a place where an artist, a designer, a programmer can use a tool to collaborate and put all of these assets together. The engine itself runs most of the calculations. So if you're talking about physics, the actual graphic displays, it's already there. You don't have to tweak it too much unless you're wanting to do something specific to your project. So it's basically an, a map editor, an art editor to some respects. Mm-hmm. And you can actually, like if you're compi- compiling code for it, you can hook up Visual Studio di- directly to it. Now, what kind of code so would you it, be um, compiling? Well, if you were talking about back then, it would have been Unreal Script, but now it's uh, C++. I, I, no, that's getting too deep. I mean, what would you use code to do? Um Oh, okay. Make a statement or do something or interaction. Yeah. So it depends on what you're doing. So if, if we're making a Mario game, for instance, okay, you would, you would be coding what they call a player controller. So that would be the input for an object on the screen that the player is going to control. So when this person presses a, you have to code the response to that button press okay so you would need to know the mathematics by adding an impulse to physics to propel the character in the air and back down you need to know about velocity and how fast you want this character to run in this direction you want to do the same for the other direction Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of tools in there already to help you with that so there's already um, calculators for friction, airspeed, huh. um, you know, basic physics things. If you want to defy physics, and that's when you kind of have to do a little bit of tinkering. So what's there, you're basically using code to do characters, to do UI, to do AI. Like, there's no AI in the engine you always have to build that yourself there's character controllers no ai um you build the interactions like a character touching an object or turning a switch other you know just basically how the player interacts with the world is what you're going to code the thing about the new unreal engine is you don't know need to know a lick of code you could actually do all of this through a visual design sense i wouldn't recommend it but you could do it um but yeah, an engine is just basically a tool to prototype and get the game design process started. Um, back then, we're talking pre-Unreal, you'd have to build your engines from the ground up. You uh. know, building an engine is a very intensive process. Nothing that I know about because that is for geniuses and I'm not a genius. I just play with the APIs I'm given. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm good with that. I'm good with playing with other people's APIs, but making some crazy physics API, that's that's something out of my wheelhouse. So out of an as an analogy, it would be kind of like you can program in PHP or Perl, but you can't write the language of PHP or Perl. 
I think so. Like if or C or, like, or whatever language. Like you can program within the language, following the rules that are given and the, the constraints they give. But to actually invent the language itself and the machine code to talk to the computer is a little bit heavy. No, the engine will handle all hardware interactions okay. for the most part. You can look at the source code and check out what they do, but that's all there for you. Hmm. Um, the engine does the heavy lifting. You're just putting the cherry on top. Okay. Yeah. So that's what a game engine does. It does all the genius stuff and lets us non-geniuses play with it and make something out of it. That's cool, though, because the artists typically aren't the geniuses that are in the code. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, if every game developer had to design a game engine from the ground up every time they made a game, that would put millions and millions of dollars on top of their budget. So they'll just lease out these engines that have already done a lot of the groundwork for them and add Mm -hmm. upon it. So that's... It really cuts down the production process by quite a bit. That's cool. Now, we were talking the other evening, and um, you mentioned that before gaming, you were going to be a musician. I feel like we yeah. passed over that. So we haven't actually. Okay. So there's 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 some story in there. Uh-oh. All right. So <laughs> we have not. We have not passed it. All right. So I do get in. What happens is I get enthralled by this engine. I actually drop out of community college because I feel like the programming I'm learning is not exactly necessary to what I really wanted to do because I was already able to somewhat do it. You know, I was able to create a level. I was able to put, you know, characters in that level, uh, create design interactions without having to code. There's a... It was harder to get around it, but I could still do it without writing a lick of code. So I drop out. Um, My family kind of goes through a little financial turmoil. So instead of, you know, pursuing the game thing and focusing on it, I end up working a full-time job for quite a few years. We're talking about eight years, just working a working class full-time job to help support my mom because um, before I moved out, well, actually, before I moved to to college and started working, because um, I, I also had a job while I was working college, but it was just a real part-time weekend job. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened with my family is that we had been living in really low-cost, affordable housing for quite a while. And... It wasn't government-mandated low-cost housing. Mm-hmm. It was just that the landlord who owned the house that we lived in was very generous and, mm. I guess, saw our situation and never charged us a lot of money. Um, just And this was a three-bedroom house in Southern California. And from what I remember when we were young, we were paying like maybe $400 a month. Mm-hmm. Which was just pretty low. Mm-hmm. I think it got up to 700 around 1990-ish, 1999, mm-hmm. around there. So what happens is our landlord's getting old. So uh. she, yeah, she sells her her house to a management group. 
<laughs> and they spiked the rent up. Right. Like more than we can afford. Right. Um, this is with government assistance. The thing is, my mom is also working a full-time job at the time. My stepdad, I don't even want to talk about him. He, he was working as a barber, but he did not pull in too much money. Mm-hmm. So what happened is um, we had to leave the house, and then we all go, three people, we all go live in a one-bedroom apartment because that's all that we could afford. You know, that's how pricing is in Southern California. We were just lucky for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't on Section 8. It's just that we, we had a generous landlady who right. was not charging us a whole lot. And it was a nice place. It wasn't like a run-down, decrepit place. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was okay place. So we move out. We go to a one-bedroom apartment. I kind of went into a depressive funk at that moment because I was mm-hmm. kind of examining my life. You know, I wasn't cutting it in college. You know, the classes were super hard. I know I could do it, but I felt that at our current financial situation, I didn't feel that I could afford college. Hmm. Like I already got bad grades and I wouldn't say bad as like a, probably a B minus average in high school. Right. I thought you had to be like a super genius to go to college. I was unaware of how th- things worked at the time. Um, and I was getting a little bit better grades in, in in community college, but the counselors were so mean, man. Huh. Like you go to a counselor, you ask them, oh, I want to do this. I was like, oh, mm, you don't look like uh, you can do that. You should do this. And I, I was like, oh, okay. So they, they didn't help my self-esteem either. So all this stuff happened. I feel kind of downbeaten, but... I'm helping my family out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm working. I'm giving them money so we could all live at least in a place. One bedroom mm-hmm. apartment, three people, but hey, you know, that's, that's what you got to deal with. So during this thing, I kind of turned inward. Um, I got really, a, I would say, addicted to certain types of games and the types of games I'm talking about here are MMOs. Okay. So we're talking, yeah, we're talking about world of Warcraft type games. That's not what I played, but we're talking about games like that. So I got sucked in elder scrolls or there's a, uh, there's a bunch of different ones. Yeah. So I got turned into those. I had my head down for eight years just kind of living life and living this other life online. Right. That's what I was looking forward to every day. It wasn't this mundane life of working this working class job. Every day I was just looking forward to coming home, getting on my PC and talking to my online friends and playing a game with them. You were a hero online. He said, yeah, exactly. Yes. So this, went on for eight years and then there was a point where I wasn't satisfied with my job either. And I started doing really like a really crappy job at my job. What was your job? I was a night watchman. So I just worked security. Like Mm. I would say the, the graveyard shift. That's what I was doing. I was working at a bunch of different places. So the 
Coca-Cola bottling company. I worked at hotels. I worked at the airport. Lots of different places. Not that fulfilling. Sent me around. No, not at all. The only thing I liked about my job is I could do anything I want because nobody was watching me. Mm. It's like you're just left alone in a building, sitting by yourself, doing whatever the hell you want. I well, was you're the completely watcher. A- <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. I was completely unmotivated. So what happens? I get let go for doing a poor job. I was just an unmotivated wreck. Hmm. Didn't know what to do with my life. Um, At that point, I was thinking about how enthusiastic I was um, growing up. And throughout this whole time, I'm not only just playing video games, I'm also getting into electronic music production as well. Hmm. That was one of the only other creative outlets I had at the point. So I'm I'm doing this electronic music thing. Like, oh yeah, this is really fun. Um, and then I lose my job and I say, hey, you know, I can try to go back to college again and see if I can make this music thing work. I want to learn more about music. Mm-hmm. I was single, you know, I had no real responsibilities. So I'd say, hey, let's try it out. So I'll go back to... Uh, community college for music and I connected with everybody there it really made me happy again oh wow um, yeah I was because I, I got a girlfriend I told her you know what um, I'm I'm glad I, I got fired did that pull I'm you really out of the gaming or the it, game addiction at all yes it, it also did that as well so cool. so you connected. so yeah I connected with people again Awesome. So, yeah, I was pretty much a hermit for a while. So I was glad because the big problem with my job is that I'm working on the weekends at night right? where everybody gets together. So um, even my job isolates me. Um, After I lost my job, it was a big weight lifted off of me. Yes, it hurt us financially, but the thing is... I had been working for eight years. I applied for unemployment and whatnot. That helped out a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still living with the family. That helped me to be able to pursue some education. So I went back to school. Um, I was so happy doing music. It was great. Uh, I did it for about three years. And one of my good buddies from high school, um, he actually made it into the game industry. He Mm. went to a... Yeah, he went to a for-profit school, went to a big, um, a big studio. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty deep into my music. Um, I'm playing in jazz bands. Um, just loving all the people I'm around. We're going out gigging. We're talking music all day. Uh, it's great. What you instruments know, it's like were being you playing? A so when I went in, um, I was actually interested in a couple instruments. I actually played probably three, but I only stuck with one. So I went in thinking, oh, I'm going to be a piano player. Okay. Then I saw the other piano players playing <laughs> Chopin. Right. I was like, uh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, what's something I could play? Because actually the main reason I went back for... St- for, for music wasn't for playing. It was just to learn how to compose, to make my electronic music sound better, to be 
perhaps a game music composer. Mm-hmm. A lot of the music I was doing was very much influenced by the music I was hearing in the games that I was playing. Hmm. And I was imagining that the music that I was making was something that could go in a game soundtrack. So my main focus with going into school was just to learn the fundamentals of music theory and how to actually compose a song. The actual theory behind how these notes fit together, how these chords fit together. So I go, I get sucked in. They're like, um, I know you're a music major, but you can't just come here without playing an instrument. So you're going to have to pick something. <laughs> it's like, okay. Tambourine. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it had to be like a legitimate instrument. So anyway, oh. um, this was also during the era where games like Guitar Hero come out. Mm. I loved that game. I was like, you know what? I really loved Guitar Hero. Let me go and try to pick up a guitar. Of course, I sucked at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I kept at it. Um, I actually first started into classical guitar music. Mm. I don't know why, but that's what I went to first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was in these classical guitar classes, learning classical theory, and I was going through it. I was really struggling. Um, I was having a lot of trouble just memorizing music and playing it flawlessly. And it looks so easy to all of my classmates that you could just sit down there for three minutes and play a classical guitar piece from beginning to end Mm -hmm. as if it was nothing. So, you know, I'm spending so much time practicing and practicing and practicing. We're talking about hours. I do these recitals and I'm just like, oh man, screwing up and I'm right. So my girlfriend at the time, she's like, why don't you join the jazz group? You know, check that out. So I went mm-hmm. to check out one of the performances. I was like, you yeah, know, this really sounds great. You know, this is like music. That sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. I wasn't terribly interested in classical music. But once I heard jazz, I was like, you know what? That's what the cool kids are doing. (laughs) Let me go ahead and do that. (laughs) So so I got into jazz. um, Actually became pretty good and proficient at it. And I was going out in gigs, going out with my classmates, playing at coffee shops, at weddings, you know, at, you know, you name it. Now, do you the read music you too? I can read it, but I'm not a good sight reader. Right. So, yeah, I can read the music. I'm not a good at sight reading music. So that was another issue I was having. Mm-hmm. So what I learned in jazz is like, oh, you don't need to know how to sight read. You just need to know these chord progressions and mm-hmm. these chord symbols. And you're not tied to the rhythm that's written on a page. You could play it any way you want and you could play whatever you want during your solo as long as it, as it sounds like it goes with the music. Right. So that was um, very liberating since I went in as a composer. So what jazz is, is you're composing on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. So because I was able to do that com- on the fly composition, that kept me interested in jazz because hmm. I could always compose things outside. I can compose licks, bring them in and then, you know, do some other things when you're doing your solos. So I'm going along in this jazz curriculum and I'm totally all for it. At this 
point in time, I was like, you know what? I want to be a professor. I want to teach music. Mm-hmm. So what happens? My buddy drops in. He's like, hey, man, I know you know your stuff with the video games. We want, we're looking for somebody. I was like, really? Wow. Yeah. I was like, well, all right, man. Well, if, if you can get me the interview, that'd be great. So I go on the interview, which wasn't even an interview. Like he vouched for me so hard <laughs> that, that there was no interview. No, that's always handy. Was, yeah. I just walked in and they were basically telling me what I was going to do. Cool. I was like, great. <laughs> so yeah, he told me, yeah, man, I know you know your stuff. So we're not, we're not worried about you. And they didn't have to be cause I did know my stuff at that point. So I had to drop out because they needed me now. So mm-hmm. this was in a, this was like in April of 2010. Mm. So I go and I start working for Namco as a intern. So I'm working at, on a particular part of their game, which was Splatterhouse at the time. Okay. Um, and I was on contract. Um, I got brought in to late into the development and they needed extra help. So I'm helping them and my contract ends. I'm like, um, we still need you, man. <laughs> You're, thank God. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're like, we're, we, we still need you. So here's what we, we're going to do. You're, you're going to be a regular designer. We'll, we'll double your pay and just help us to the end here. So we finish everything out. And that's the a shirt you have was, on, isn't it? Yes. This is the shirt. This is actually, they gave this to me. This is a uh, cool. dev, dev merch. Well, not even merch. This is swag. So anyway, um, we get through that project and the publisher wasn't, they weren't really happy. I would say they weren't confident. So what happened is I was done with my job a little bit before, but they actually cut the whole studio before the game even hit the shelves. Oh yeah. It hadn't even hit the shelves yet and they cut all the personnel. God. Yeah. So I was like, man, that was some great experience. I have a resume now. Um, you know, I can go out to game companies and say, yeah, I worked on this game. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get into the industry without any experience. So I was able to work at many different studios. Um, last studio I worked for was for um, Activision. We did Call of Duty and I held different positions as well. So my first position was game design position. The second position I had was a programming position. Now, what, what is Third. game design exactly? I'm, I'm sorry. All right. So game design, uh, what you do is you script the player interactions. So you're not coding too much, but you're going into a game level and setting it up for a player. Okay. So So it's like you're placing the enemies, you're creating events that the player can trigger to cause another event to occur. You're basically creating just the in-game exploration, environmental um, objects. It depends on your scope, but um, for the first um, 
for the, for my first job, I was setting up player encounters with enemies, uh, setting up anything that a player would interact with. I had to place it and set it up and had to design the combat scenarios that a player would face or any type of little puzzles or anything that a, a player would um, oh, okay. interact with. Okay. Yeah. And then the programmer would make those actions take place? What the programmer does is they would create the tools that I would use to create the scenario. So say I needed a tool or something, say, okay, programmer, I need an object that if the player touches, it will trigger this object here and they'll make that for me. And I place the object in and I hook stuff up to these triggers to go off. Huh. So they would just create the tool to do that. And there's different types of programmers. You have the gameplay programmers, which mm-hmm. do things like that. You have graphics programmers with help optimize the graphics engine. You have physics guys. There's a bunch of different levels of programming. Um, but for my second position, I was a gameplay programmer. So I was basically making the tools that a game designer would use. Okay. So that's what I did for my second job. I've jumped to tester. I've done testing. I've done more uh, game design and gameplay stuff here and there. But my last position, um, I actually was a tester. And one of the main reasons I took this job was because of the game I was going to be working on. And that was Call of Duty. So I was like, wow, you know what? I'll do a testing job if I'll, I'll do Call of Duty. <laughs> and testing is, it's fine. It's, I wouldn't say it's the worst job. It's not a bad job at all. It's good. It's a good is it job. like being the player before it gets to a player? So the thing that is a gross misconception of what a tester does is a tester does not play a game. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you just follow through every action it's supposed to do. Like if they say, if this is here to do that, you go and make sure that it responds according to what it said. Is that it then? Yeah, you're not actually playing. The only time you actually play the game is before the game releases. Ah, okay. That's it. You Before the game releases, you actually play it. Go through it and play it like a normal game. All right, so when I was on... Um, I was on Call of Duty. I worked on the multiplayer testing team and a bit on the co-op testing team. Um, I didn't have to deal with the single player stuff, which is like the really boring testing, which was great. I didn't have to worry about single player testing. So all I did was run multiplayer tests all day. We test weapons to see if things are working right, make sure art's looking okay, mm-hmm. checking nooks and crannies, making sure there's no weird glitches and stuff. And then we get handed down tasks from the development team. We're working right in the same office with the developers. There's there's different types of testers. There's outsourced testers where you just push out a build to them, they test it. They basically would be like our helpers. Mm-hmm. So we're the first line defense for anything that goes wrong. So and we have direct access. We could just go over to our programmer and say, hey, this is what I found. It's like, um, and they'll give you like, oh, why don't you try this? See if what happens here. So we have, we're talking to these guys on a daily basis, mm-hmm. back and forth. You're, you're an apartment member of the development team. Mm-hmm. So you're right there with them. It's a, just a complete collaborative process. So I'm doing Call of Duty. Awesome. Very awesome experience. I was a tester. It was great. 
Um, you know, they gave us free lunch. They had beer kegs in the cafeteria for free during the day. You know, how, yeah. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> like, how can you be? Well, that's what happens when you work at a crazy game. Like I guess so. so yeah, we had three beer kegs. One was IPA. Sometimes some guys would bring some home brews in and fill the kegs. Oh my God. Um, we had, yeah, we had catered lunches um, twice, twice, a, twice a week free. Um, hmm. The other, the other days, um, really low price cafe. A lady who was doing her own catering service, very low price, very good food, very reasonable, and the beer was free, so that was great. Wow. Um, so the thing about the game industry, though, you're working some hours. So at the absolute craziest you're working seven days a week mm. 12 12 hours a day mm. these are the hours before you're going to release a game so if you want a social life don't work in the game industry that's all i'm going to say right um and working with call of duty since we're on a team that is continually pushing out some downloadable um some downloadable content after the game comes out so we're continually, right. continually working and and working and testing these new these new things that come out. So it's just lots and lots and lots of work. Just keeping busy, keeping busy, keeping busy. So at this time, uh, I've I had also been in a long distance distance relationship for a while, and um, she's from Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and things are going bad in Puerto Rico at the time. So we're thinking of. You know, they're in a bunch of debt. She's been a, a school teacher for a very long time, for 10 years. She has a master's degree, um, which I pushed her to get the master's degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things are going bad in the Puerto Rican economy. Um, she actually got out at a good time because at that time, they're also, um, they were cutting all the retirements for their teachers. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we had our discussions and uh, we basically came to the decision for things to work between us and for things to get better, she's going to have to move to the States. So at this time, she goes searching across the country for jobs. She finds a nice, paying, amazing job in Maryland. Mm. (laughs) So Maryland, yeah. And I'm in California and she's in Puerto Rico. Uh-huh. The thing about Maryland is they pay really good. So she moved, basically doubled her salary, got a place in Virginia. She didn't want to move to Maryland because um, initially she moved right next to the school. And it's not a great area, I would say. I don't know if you know too much about Maryland, but I watched The Wire, um, so I know everything, right? Well, that's Baltimore. That's that's way crazier. Okay, I was joking, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah, so she she finds this nice spot that's paying great money. And um, she initially gets her apartment. She sees the apartment. Um, she's like, no way. I'm not going to live in this apartment building. Uh, she told me the front door had like an inch gap <laughs> under it. You know, and we're in an area that snows and you want an inch gap in the no. front door. So she is, she talked to some other teachers and she's like, no, um, I wouldn't live around here if I were you, you know, there's so, so-and-so area. So 
Um, she actually had family that lived here, so she stayed with her family for a while while she situated herself, and then she found her own apartment. So I'm working at California. I'm on contract. I was told when I started the contract that, oh, your contract's going to be up in April, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, okay. So I told my girlfriend, well, contract's in April, and I'll be there in Virginia in April. So what happens is they actually left my contract open. Um, Hmm. They actually really wanted me to stay there. I felt really bad for leaving them um, because it felt... I told him in the beginning that there was a possibility I was going to move over there because before I even started this job, she had moved mm. and she was waiting for me. And I told him, yeah, around April, I know that's when you set a contract's up. So yeah, I'm going to be out of here by April. So it gets close to the time mm-hmm. and things are going full steam, you know, <laughs> your crazy 80 hour, hundred hour weeks. Right. So, the dream job, mm-hmm. the beer in the cafeteria. So I dropped my two week notice. He was very disappointed. You know, he, he knew he was going to lose a top notch guy. I was a super hard worker. Um, I was like at the point I was probably the second most productive guy there in my little team of 25. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the leader, but I was part of that team as a 25 man team. Um, and it was really disappointing because he knew he was going to lose like a good worker. So mm-hmm. I move over here. I drive cross country in my convertible Celica 89. Nice. <laughs> An 89 Celica. Brand new, buddy. <laughs> so I drive cross country. I get to experience what the rest of the country is like. That was a shocker. Um, I drew in which drove way? through. Well, I had really had not any experience with which people would call a flyover state. Mm-hmm. I had no experience with the South, no experience with people talking odd accents that I wasn't used to mm-hmm. in California. You're not going to hear anybody with a Southern accent at all. No. And the at only all. thing so, you're exposed to is Hollywood, which means they're all inbred rooms that's why they represent the (laughs) south so that probably didn't help yeah so i'm traveling i'm meeting people that are really different from me um and i think at that point there was a point when i was going through indiana where i think i kind of realized that i had experienced my first touch with racism really okay yeah, it was never a problem at all in California and never, never had a problem with racism. So what happened is I was driving, getting gas. It was late at night. I, and I could understand, you know, why this lady did what she did. So I go inside to pay for the gas and the lady is giving me very, very menacing look mm-hmm. like I should not be in that place. And I was kind of freaked out. You know, I've never gotten this type of reception from anybody when going into a gas station to pay for the, for, for my gas. Right. So I buy a coffee because it's late at night and I still need to do some more driving. And I go up to the cash register Mm -hmm. and I hand her some money 
and then I say a couple words. She hears my voice and her face completely changed to normal. Mm. It was weird. So she hears me talking and she relaxes. I don't know if it had something to do with the way I talk or what I sound like, but it was as like she knew I wasn't around. I wasn't from around that area Hmm. as if I wasn't, it it was very strange, something I'd never experienced before. And she lightened up. She was fine after she heard me speak. Right. So I had that odd experience. I get to Virginia and now crazy thing about Virginia or exactly where I'm at now, which would be the DC suburbs there's not a whole lot of game studios up here, so the pickings are slim. Yeah. Uh, very slim, actually. So, uh, because there's not a whole lot of job openings for guys like me, I went back and started doing some working class stuff again. Thing is, I'm fine. I love it. I have a daughter now. I'm providing for a family. Uh-huh. I work a lot. But my outlet now is mixed mental arts. Ah. I'm just, that is my outlet. The thing is, um, I never got a proper education. I never finished my education. Mm-hmm. So for me, mixed mental arts is my education. Kind of your um, humanities after a fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I never got a humanities education like, the one I'm getting from mixed mental arts, like all these books um, that we're reading about psychology, about evolution, right? um, About culture. Uh, These are really new to me. So um, I got into these books and these concepts that the mixed mental arts community got me started on. And I was really very, very enthusiastic about learning stuff. Mm-hmm. So much so, I start making videos on this revolutionary book that Hunter Motz talks about, Black Rednecks, White Liberals. Awesome I start making book. videos about it. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. And, Have you read his um, 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 economic stuff? Thomas Sowell writes some amazing economic material, too. Yeah, actually, I somebody in the community has recommended... Um, one of his earlier economics books, which is kind of for people that don't know too much about economics, mm-hmm. which would be me. Um, he recommended that I'm going to take a look at that when I get the chance. But, um, yeah, I made these videos. Hunter saw these videos. It's like, damn, this guy's enthusiastic as hell. And he knows how to make videos <laughs> for the audience. That's Hunter Motz. Who's been in episode one and interviewed me in episode six. So should be well familiar to, this podcast too. Yeah. So, uh, Hunter Motz invited me into the community and into helping the podcast, the website and the community itself. I don't know what he saw in me, but he must've saw something. So now behind, I'm a behind the scenes guy. I'm working with all of our different, um, our content creators. So, you know, I help Isaiah, mm-hmm. you know, Isaiah Gooley, who you've also talked to. He works with me directly. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I help him. I, what I do in mixed metal arts is I try to facilitate. So 
if somebody has a problem that they're not able to communicate to another member, mm-hmm. I'll try to help communicate that problem. Um, I also, since I'm such a weird jack of trades guy, mm-hmm. whatever they ask me to do, I can do it. So say, Hey, can you edit this video? We don't have anybody here to do it at this time. I know you know how to do that video stuff. I'll go edit the video. Hey, can you, uh, do some moderation here. Um, some guys going crazy on the forums. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I can help you out. Um, and I've also pitched, you know, a couple other projects, um, like possibly maybe doing some type of video game for mixed mental arts. But, um, yeah, I'm just, um, really a part of the community now and whenever there's a problem, I try to help them fix it. And this is both with communication or with logistics, anything of that nature. I think uh, one of the big things I've helped out with is just getting people to communicate, getting people a little bit more efficient about uh, what things we need to do. So what I learned from my time as a, a game developer, there were some certain things that I was taught in game development that I brought in to mixed mental arts that really helped us like, um, one of the things that if you're familiar uh, with, if you are a software developer, there's something we call agile, which is type of a production structure where we keep mm-hmm. tra- uh, track of tasks mm-hmm. and help people along the way if they have problems. So I brought um, Scrum into Mixed Middle Arts just behind the scenes to help, you know, trying to get everybody on tasks, everybody communicating and everybody on the same page. So that's pretty much what I do mainly. Um, my official title, I guess, would be the Mixed Mental Arts Scrum Master. But I actually changed that to <laughs> Scrum Lord because... There you um, go. Why sell yourself short? <laughs> well, there's actually a reason. Uh, a Scrum Master is someone who oversees a software development team. Mm-hmm. A Scrum Lord, and I did actually go and look this up online, is somebody who oversees a content creation team so it's uh, it's somebody who helps creative people you know stay on task or with problems that they might have um to help with communication you know things like that so that's what i'm doing for mma now and i basically laid my life bare to you so (laughs) you now know everything Almost. Uh, you forgot to mention that you run the Mixed Mental Arts Chats. Yeah. You know what? I completely forgot about that, which is <laughs> and probably, that's probably the most, most visible. important job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so let me go ahead and explain what the chats is. Um, Hunter was seeing that there was a problem. And the problem that any internet community has is that Humans are built to communicate non-verbally. Mm-hmm. And when you're just online in forums, you don't have that. You can't sense the non-verbal cues that somebody may be trying to present to you during a conversation. Right. So why do people blow up on a forum? It's because they take it in a different way that they can't see ver- like non-verbally, right? Sure. So I proposed to Hunter. He's like, okay, Hunter, I know there's a lot, been a lot of blow ups on the forum 
I'd like to get some more intimate discussions with some of our community members about some of the topics that we talk about or even introduce some new topics that, you know, might interest people. And he says, yeah, that's a bang up idea. Why don't you go try it out? So I went and I knew that you could do some live streams on YouTube and it's all the popular thing now is just to grab a bunch of people and talk about the events of the day. So I went ahead and set up their account to do these live streams on the weekends and we tested it out. Um, and it's, it's also, if you think about the mixed mental arts podcast, we are really big on education. So many of the podcasts do have some type of, um, teachable moments like we'll do a whole pot or a whole chat about economics maybe, or a chat about a specific book. So we like to do a monthly book chat just to do review or to get people who actually want to talk about books together to talk mm-hmm. about the books online. So MMA chats was also made to get the community involved in a different way. Um, Very cool. We, yeah, we know we have, you know, your regular chat rooms, your regular forums. We just wanted to evolve it to a little bit of a more personal level. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now, on that note, um, you've got a song that you're going to let me use to close us to help um, showcase your music. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah, so the song that I have given you to take a look at and to present here at the end of the show. It was something that I came up with at the time when I was in college. Um, This is when I was part of a Afro-Cuban jazz band. So in this track, I'm a guitarist. You'll, you'll hear me playing, Mm -hmm. but since I had such a great love for video game music, I approached my, professor at the time and said hey man i got this song it's not exactly afro-cuban but maybe we can do something with it and see if they'll like it so he took the song he arranged it for an afro-cuban rhythm and he says hey uh take a look at what we did and i look over and oh yeah this is great so we take it to class we practice it and we practice it the whole semester. Also at this time, the reason that this musical track exists was because they were making cuts at the college. So mm. they, yeah, this was going to be the final class for Afro Cuban jazz band. Mm. So what happened is he had built up some petty cash. Um, he said, well, this is going to be the final class. We're not coming back next year, but I got this petty cash. So let's, uh, let's use it for something. So he goes to a studio in San Diego and books us some studio time. Oh, sweet. So he's like, all right, we're going to immortalize this class by doing a recording session. So we recorded the song. It's a remix of a video game song from a Sega Genesis game called Ristar. The track is called Dancing Leaves, but because of the submission process where I submitted it to a video game remix site, I went ahead and changed the title a little bit and uh, renamed it um, 
I don't even remember what I renamed it, <laughs> but <laughs> I know it's like Fiesta Amongst the Trees is uh, what its other title was because they required a, we couldn't submit it as the actual title of the song that we remixed it. So we had to change the title up so they would accept the submission. That is very cool. And that's almost like a perfect transition point in your life, in the podcast and everything. Yeah, I'm loving life right now. I know I'm not doing my whole video game stuff at the moment, but, and what I mean by video game stuff, I mean like working at a crazy studio for like a million hours a week. Right. I have dropped off on more to a consultant, so I help small groups out with their games now just to keep me busy in that realm to make sure... I'm updating my experience there. I I haven't completely abandoned it, but yeah, I'm loving life. I'm loving mixed mental arts and I just want to help people talk to each other. That's all I want to do. Well, awesome. Now, where can people find you? Obviously they'll find you on mixed mental arts and they can probably find you wandering around unstructured from time to time. And let me see. You're also woke centrist on Twitter. So that is right. Is that yeah, the primary so way to wanna, get a hold of you? Yeah. If you want to find me, you can go on Twitter um, at woke centrist. Um, if you want to hear some really crazy and crazy debates to complete ideologues, you can uh, go on our mixed mental arts <laughs> group on Facebook <laughs> where you'll see me um, semi trolling people into a virtuous center position. Um, you can also find me on YouTube as well. I also have a YouTube channel, Woke Centrist, where I release periodical content based off of ideas that I learned from mixed mental arts. So right now I'm going through a series on black rednecks, right, white liberals, where I'm going through the book, trying to break down some of the basic concepts. And it's uh, more of an educational tool just to get some of the awesome concepts from that book into the world so that they will prostrate themselves before Brian Callen and uh, maybe even Thomas Hall. <laughs> okay. Inside joke. Well, hey, thanks very much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. (laughs) 